Hello and welcome to Sound of the Moment. I'm your host, Pat Cleaver, and this is the bi-weekly show featuring conversations with musicians about jazz, music, and more. New episodes are released every second Monday. Please subscribe wherever you like to get your podcasts to remain updated. If you want to be in touch, you can do that via Twitter at Pat Cleaver. You can like the Sound of the Moment page on Facebook and message me over there, or you can email me at pat at soundofthemoment.com. The show will always be free to download and listen to, but if you do want to support me and help out with covering costs of production and hosting, you can make monthly or one-off donations at patreon.com slash soundofthemoment. There is also a link to that on soundofthemoment.com. Thank you so much to those of you who are already donating. This is episode number 44 for the 8th of July 2019. My guest is bassist and improviser Raoul van der Weyde. He just released a new album with his Xavier Pamplona septet entitled Play The. Before our conversation, here's a track from that record. This is a trio piece that features Marta Varelis on piano and Michael Moore on clarinet. It's a composition by the cellist Fred Katz, who used to be a member of the Chico Hamilton quintet in the 50s. Unfortunately, the title of the piece has been lost, so it appears untitled on the record.
bassist and composer Raoul van der Weide is my guest today. Uh, Raoul, thanks so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Um, I always like to begin, and this is a very vast and vague question, but I like to begin by asking my guests to introduce themselves a bit, tell folks a bit about who you are, uh, where you're from, and what you do in a kind of general sense. Um, well, I'm a bass player that started uh, having classical violin lessons when I was a young boy, mm-hmm. between 8 and 15 years. During that, uh, I got private lessons, <clears throat> classical music. During those uh, years, I developed, in a way, a kind of uh, improvisation, but I got often very bored with the etudes I had to play. Mm-hmm. So then I was starting to make variations on that etude, not knowing that it was improvisation, yeah. but I was just playing, literally, with the material. Yeah. So actually, for me, that's perhaps the first step in what became later a kind of daily practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, then um, I moved to Amsterdam to study sociology in 1969. Mm-hmm. And in 1967, my neighbor, I was living in the town of Alkmaar, up north of Amsterdam. Yeah. Uh, he studied social geography in at the University of Amsterdam and he brought uh, LPs from Ornette Coleman and from Albert Ehler and from stuff. So we listened to that and then we said, yeah, we, we should do something. Yeah. And then I went with him to Amsterdam to Hampen, the music store at the Spui. And in these days, uh, Hampen had about 15 second-hand basses on a row <laughs> in the attic. Yeah. And we went there and I didn't know because I decided I will play bass yeah. without any ID. <laughs> so we went there, and then, uh, yeah, what what to cho- to choose? So I thought, oh, I'll take that. That's the nicest color. <laughs> <laughs> so beautiful lacquer. Yeah. And I remember it was 300 guilders, so let's say now 150 euro, perhaps. Okay, yeah. And the cover, really thin cover for, for 20 guilders or something. Yeah. And then we went back in the train, in tram, train Al- to Alkmaar, then walked to our... House and then we started to to yeah to play in a way uh, Sunday afternoons in my house. I had a piano and a friend of us was a drummer. Mm-hmm. We all didn't know what to do actually, but we uh, those recordings we heard inspired us in a way. So that's actually how it started a bit a strange mix of um, incompetence, uh, love for the music we already heard um, from jazz. Part my father was very into Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, old stuff. Mm-hmm. And when he was a student in chemistry, he visited Duke Ellington uh, concerts, orchestra concert in Utrecht. Mm-hmm. So they played, I think, two gigs in the Netherlands, Utrecht, Amsterdam, and then they went to Stockholm with a special train, Duke Ellington train. <laughs> well, actually, my father was really uh, a lover of the, of, uh, of that type of jazz. And Artatum, and later we we were living in France. He came with Django Reinhardt, a lot mm-hmm. of music. So actually, that's an old influence also next to the classical music. So <clears throat> that's basically how it started a bit. Yeah. And when I started to uh, study sociology, parallel I started to play with more and more people. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, I met Wim Janssen and Guus Janssen. And then we started to play, and in uh, '78, 
we were invited in a band called Het Punt Uit Orkest. Mm-hmm. Punt Uit means uh, basta. Or, uh, and that was, uh, that was initiated by a Dutch trombone player, now completely forgotten, uh, called Bert Koppelaar. Okay. And Bert Koppelaar was one of the, the first edition ICP players. Mm-hmm. So he was in that too. Yeah. And that was a great band. For me, that was actually perhaps the, the, the most interesting band I ever played in. It was only eight months, because after eight months, Bert Koppelaar stopped the band. Okay. But we played there. Uh, we were the first band in the Netherlands playing uh, Nino Rota plus Impro. Uh, we, uh, Albert Ayler, we played um, uh, circus music. Mm-hmm. So it was completely mixed. We played the reggae. You know, it was a very broad... And I liked a lot yeah. also of the theatrical part of the music. The circus music was very nice. Yeah. So if I talk about that, then uh, you can perhaps better understand the CD I brought, uh, I released, the Xavier Pamplona Septet, because part of the repertoire is actually a homage to that Punt Out orchestra. Yeah. Because after eight months, the orchestra stopped. Mm-hmm. And after that, there was no more... Uh, groups that played that. So then, I mean, after Punt Uit, I became a member of the Guzjanse Septet for 11 years, yeah. that, which was basically the most important uh, influence and development for, for my own personal development as a musician. Mm-hmm. Because Guz wrote very simple structures with a lot of freedom. And when we rehearsed, he would never say, no, no, do it like this. He was really... He, he left you in your own capacity to find solutions for musical problems in the pieces. Yeah. So that was great. That was a, that's yeah. I think that's the most important uh, influence. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sure. Um, there's all kinds of stuff that I want to touch upon with you, but yeah. um, when we were there's a few things that we discussed before this this conversation via email, um, and I think. Like when I first reached out to you, um, the response that I got from you, which is interesting because I think it's the first time I, ha- I have somebody respond this way, was you basically said, "Oh well, uh, thanks for inviting me to talk on your podcast and stuff." And I think it makes total sense that you should be here because I think you're a really important figure in the in the improv scene here and in the jazz scene and stuff. But your response seemed to kind of imply, "Well, I don't know if I would identify, identify myself as a jazz musician. I don't know how I fit to this context and stuff." Um, I, could you maybe elaborate on that a bit? Like, is it a sense of not being, not self-defining in that way, not wanting to pigeonhole yourself as one thing or another, or is it kind of like a sense of, um, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like it's often a sense of reverence and kind of being humble about. Oh, jazz music is something that I can refer to, but not necessarily practice. Or I, I don't know. Like. Can you elaborate on that a bit? I think initially I got the impression that uh, because uh, my idea about you, which is really limited, but I thought, yeah, (laughs) Pat is is a real jazz bass player. So (laughs) perhaps he expects from me, uh, he invites people that are into that paradigma. Yeah, right. uh, Part, active part of that, Mm -hmm. which I'm not. I mean, I love jazz a lot, but basically I do as if I play jazz. Yeah. And that might be disturbing for some people. I don't know. So I was a bit 
I had some reservations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perhaps you were expecting something different. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, so, I have a quite clear idea of of the kinds of things that you do, and that's also why I'm interested yeah, to, to yeah, speak yeah. to you about so, it. So, uh, yeah, uh, to give an example, uh, I think in 2004 we recorded with Guus, Janse, Wim Janse, and Jorrit Dijkstra, the alto saxophonist. Mm-hmm. We recorded a CD called Sound Lee. Which is a piece by uh, Lee Konitz. Lee Konitz, yeah. And actually, Guus and Wim and me and Jorik, we are very big Lee Konitz fans. Mm-hmm. And also um, Tristano fans. So that, that whole school we like a lot. Yeah. So actually, we decided, okay, let's let's make a, a CD with those pieces our way. We did, we recorded. And then Huub van Riel, who was then the program of the BIM House. Yeah and who is a very good friend of Lee Konitz, mm. he gave him the CD <laughs> and said, Lee, listen to this. And Lee listened and later on commented, and he said, they missed the point. Okay. But they made a new one. Mm. Actually, that's a great compliment, you know. Absolutely. Because yeah. we were not copying, 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 but we, we found our own solution in that material. So that's a bit my relation towards the practice of jazz as far as I can handle that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so is that kind of a through line in your work to up, up to now? Because I feel like, as far as I understood, there's a certain amount of that in your practice still today. The idea of like kind of quoting an idiom, which is jazz, but within, a, within your own context and... And like, uh, has that has that been something that's kind of just been ongoing for you over the years? Uh, I think so. I think so. Uh, I mean, of course, we are. I like that whole tradition, that whole jazz tradition. I like a lot, and there, especially in the fifties, it's a gold mine. It's fantastic recordings, and so in a way, I like to bring homage also to that tradition, but not in a literary way, quoting. A whole tune or whatever. Yeah. So I I was thinking about that, how to do it, especially on this last uh, release. And then I thought perhaps I isolate some bars of a tune from, let's say, Steve Lacey or whatever. Mm. Take that as point of departure for uh, for an improvisation within an already going on collective improvisation. So it's an extra layer. Mm-hmm. All the members can introduce that. So they should know those insertions or traces, what I call, yeah. by heart. It's it's very simple material, so everybody can uh, memorize that yeah. and use it during the collective impro, for mm-hmm. instance, to give it a new energy or a new perspective or a new turn, whatever. Yeah. So I like to, to, to weave in parts of that uh, tradition and mm-hmm. make it in a new fantasy, which, yeah. which is, yeah, actual and fantasy. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, I feel like there's something about the idea of a, like I suppose the, the so there's a there's a term that we the people like to use a lot especially in this country and I, I suppose all over the place but the, the idea of instant composing obviously we have the ICP here so like it, it feels very close to home. Yeah. Um it, in your mind like how do you kind of draw do you draw a line between the concept of like instant composing versus improvising is there like obviously they're very they're very similar but i get the feeling that in your work the idea of like improvisation within a structure or creation of structures within improvisation is kind of really important is that fair to say 
Uh, yeah, it depends a bit. Uh, if you do, let's say, um, free playing, which is also instant composing. For me, actually, improvisation, free playing, is it, it's a kind of the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes, but sometimes you operate in a, in a context of of let's say more jazzy reference that can happen. But actually, I prefer to be uh, to start from zero. If mm-hmm. we imp- if I improvise yeah. normally. So in this sense, this CD um, is a bit atypical. It's the first time I have a ba- an ensemble mm-hmm. in which I have to count off. In which, uh, you know, yeah. it, it, I never did it. I never did it. So in yeah. a way, it's also a kind of CD that's a bit uh, looking back in, in uh, the things I really liked in the last 40 years. Yeah. Uh, but to answer your question... Um, for me, instant composing or, or free playing is um, you start from zero, which is an illusion, of course, because in your system, your, yeah. ma- your musical mental system, there is a lot of information from any uh, musical sources. Mm-hmm. So, But the thing I think is important is to trust and to be really good friends with your subconsciousness, because there is the gold mine. If you can surrender in a way to the to that gold mine, then things come out during the play you completely didn't, uh, you couldn't uh, predict. Yeah. And for me, that's actually the magic of, of free playing. Mm-hmm. And of course, in the like in all social uh, processes, <clears throat> there are also processes of social control. Yeah. And that means things allowed and not allowed. <laughs> so in the beginning of the free improvised music, I think it was very uh, ideology driven. It was really against this, against that, against that. Yeah. And in time, I think that became far more liberal, far more less uh, less ideological. And actually, I, I, I like that more to keep it really free. So if I suddenly do a little walking bass in a complete free impro, for me, that's that's nice. It's okay. Yeah. But some people don't like <laughs> the hardcore guys, you know. But yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I always like to. Uh, I feel like this is a thing that guess says a lot. But like the the idea that freedom should be the freedom to not necessarily be free to a certain extent. Or I mean, that's that's maybe the wrong way to put it. But um, well, the 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 freedom to and uh, feeling the urge to discipline your mind and the material you want to use in the way you like it to make it your signature. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That need that implies a discipline. You cannot do something completely non-disciplined, I think. Mm-hmm. Because then you get problems with uh, yeah, are we talking about form or are we only talking about uh, improvisation uh, improvisation as a process, which is all possible, eh? it's it's all possible, but for me I like I like a bit more the signature approach mm. to make it very personal. And uh, yeah. yeah, I always like to discuss, especially when talking about these kinds of things. Is uh, it seems to me like if you're going to be dealing with a well-defined idiom, it's very easy to to kind of practice that. But what you're describing seems a lot more difficult to kind of nail down. How do I practice an approach to this? So how, like, how do you? 
Um, I mean, obviously, you discussed the idea that like there is no such thing as tabula rasa, and obviously, you're bringing to the table all the things that you have got, yeah, uh, and all your experiences and stuff. But how do you how do you practice that sense of being in the moment, trying to reach a certain degree of of just openness and not not bringing preconceived notions to the table and stuff? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's 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 a not existing hundred percent approach. As I said, there is no tabula rasa. It's it's not. Uh, I mean, that's an illusion. So there's always something. Mm-hmm. But what you can do, or what I do, is I just st- I try to get myself in a mental state of not knowing. Actually, that's a great if if it's a great experience because then there is no tension from outside or or you know. So you are free, and then starts the adventure. Then is how you how do you develop? How do you interact with the others? What are they doing? How do you react? Uh, so then starts a kind of conversation with with two or three others. Yeah, and yeah. It, the, so there are more uh, variable variables. Variables, yeah. Uh, so it gets more complex. But uh, so for me, duo or trio actually is 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 the best to do the completely free improvised stuff. And then, yeah, what comes in comes in. Yeah. Do you feel like it's it's kind of? I mean, necessary is maybe the wrong way to put it, but do you think it's necessary for the people that you're performing with in those moments to have that same approach, or does it? Um, um, I I believe strongly in a kind of mentality connect. Mm-hmm. So let's say if you play with a musician that is really about uh, showing what he or she can do, mm-hmm. for me, that's not that interesting because basically the improvisation is about social and uh, artistic interaction. And if you are only busy with your own, let's say, ego expression, it's great, but not in that context mm-hmm. because then part of the, of, yeah, big part of the interaction will will collapse because there is no, there is no interaction. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know some guys that uh, basically play always a solo, mm-hmm. also in things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know uh, some guys that do that, and also big names. <clears throat> and in a way, yeah, they succeed in doing that. Mm-hmm. But it's it's also a bit amazing that you think, huh? come on, uh, try to mix with us, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. So there are several approaches, and... Uh, yeah, but I'm I'm more about the 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 social artistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting because I feel like that is a that's an element that evolved in the jazz idiom at a certain point to become quite central. The idea of like everybody kind of taking a moment in the in the light and kind of like okay, now it's my moment solo, and then it's your moment solo. And obviously, if you look at like the way bebop is performed, there's obviously that clear sense of. Now the trumpet player can go get a beer while the saxophone player shows what he can do, and then I do, and and I feel like that's something that we kind of that a lot of people try to break away from now. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's interesting to hear you kind of discuss that in that. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, of course. In in the in the people tradition, that was clear. It was a really division of labor, yeah, and a hierarchy, and uh, who first and who second, blah blah. Uh, so in the music I make, that is not. Yeah, that's hardly. The case because mm-hmm. yeah we try to make ad hoc our own language yeah um, yeah more idiosyncratic yeah 
That's interesting. I mean, I like I I really like the the notions of um yeah, of of kind of social interaction within the concept of within the the context of of music. Like it's the the fact that you just say okay, well, uh, bebop is very hierarchical and um the music that you're making you're trying to get rid of that. Do you do you see a direct parallel between your approach and a specific type of kind of social construct? Like, is there something that you see out in the world that that you feel reflects in the way you approach music? Maybe that's a vague question. Even kijken. That's a very good question. It's very very difficult to answer. Um, well, we have the societal development as we are experiencing, let's say, since the, the, the Berlin Wall fell down. Yeah. There's only neoliberalism, mm-hmm. which has consequences on social and power structures on societal uh, level. Yeah. So we see those things happen. And I think artists, uh, visual artists or, or jazz artists or whatever, they focus on creating parallel universes to that neoliberal violence in a way mm-hmm. to create their own conditions their own uh, their own aesthetic their own personal stuff yeah so for me that's that's an important perhaps it's not an answer on your question yeah but uh, for me that's important um so in the free playing we leave it as free as possible but we st- of course you are focused on developing together a form and in that process of getting that form, which you can, you get better and better in it as you are more experienced. That's the great thing, actually. Yeah. So, <clears throat> but in that process, also uh, not playing is a very active, instant composing ingredient. Mm-hmm. So silence should be really treated as a very positive part of the whole sonic structure you are developing. Mm-hmm. So perhaps, yeah, that's the thing that I like to stress <laughs> a bit. <laughs> And uh, the other thing, yeah, more if I go to that um, uh, Xavier Pamplona Septet CD, uh, I give them a lot of freedom. Of course, we have the material, so that should be clear at a certain point, thematically. <clears throat> but then I leave the guy, the, the, the guys, I say, you decide yourself who is the order of solos. Mm-hmm. I give them freedom in filling in the chords, in the chord progression. So yeah. suddenly it can sound completely unisono. Mm-hmm. So every yeah. time they can decide, that, oh, I take that, you know. So I gave them also freedom in that harmonic structure. Mm-hmm. It's all trying to make it as personal as possible. Yeah. And as unpredictable as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, something that immediately comes to my mind when, like, with what you just you just described is... The notion of risk taking in yeah. in a uh, in performance and how how integral is that to the process? Like, is the goal to create risky situations, or is it? Um, that's obviously quite a reductive way to put it, I suppose. But like, I always find risk to be very interesting because there's a sense of, especially as an audience member, to watch somebody walk the tightrope. Like, it's it's a lot more interesting if you realize that they could fall to their death, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And so how how I suppose. Maybe the question is, how open are you to the idea of failure in those moments? Like, how is that even a thing that happens? I suppose. Yeah, I think I think risk is is the fuel of the the improvisation. Eh? If we talk about free improvisation, 
and realizing and accepting that failure is not a negative mm. uh, thing. Failure is a, is a big learning moment. Uh, if, so it's a mental approach about failure or, or success or failure, you know. Um, perhaps it, in my view, it's not that relevant. And if you fail, uh, the only thing, if you fail, well, that, yeah, whatever you want to define it, mm-hmm. and you don't reflect on it in a productive way or just uh, start to suffer because you fail, mm-hmm. that's really the wrong uh, direction in my view. Yeah. So take failure as a, as a gift. Yeah. It brings you further. Mm-hmm. I think that's basically... Uh, no, for sure. And then I suppose the the maybe the logical follow-up to that reflection is how what does the place of an audience have in this process in that case? Like how um what yeah, how, how does the presence of an audience influence that notion of because obviously you can be like uh completely open to explore everything and is that what you're showing the exploration and is that supposed to be the like yeah, how do I put this? Um, I guess the idea of failing in front of an audience um, and like what an audience's expectations might be, whether you're going to be subverting those expectations or whether you're going to be like playing with those expectations. I mean, um, this is all vague notions, but I don't know. If yeah, no, of, of course. I mean, let's say traditional audience have expectations. If they are confronted with music that doesn't meet those expectations, they get angry. Mm-hmm. Or they can appreciate it. It depends a bit how you see. Um, if you see, um, if you hear music that this doesn't meet your expectations, and you decide to to um, how to say it, to feel it as a problem, problematic, mm-hmm. then the audience has a problem, I think. Yeah. But there's also a part of audience. They don't understand the first time they are confronted with this type of music, mm-hmm. and they see it as a challenge. Yeah. So they are willing to make new ears, and actually that's great. So it's it's again a mental thing mm-hmm. in the audience. How do you react on things you don't know or things that don't meet your expectations? You can say, well, then it's bullshit. You know, that's that famous slam in the face of uh, Max uh, Roach when he heard Arne Coleman first time. Yeah, I'm after it's concert. Not jazz, yeah. <laughs> this is not jazz, you know. Yeah. It, I mean, that's basically the, the, the thing. The, the vine, the aggression, yeah. the, uh, if you feel insulted, whatever, you know. At mm-hmm. the end, it's sentimental. Yeah. Um, so for me, audience is um, in that, yeah, in, um, it's, um, I'm, I'm always happy if people want to listen. But I'm not a pleaser, yeah. So I don't play people uh, as yeah. I even cannot play what people want in terms of jazz, you know. So <laughs> it's also <laughs> very difficult. <laughs> but I think uh, this last recording is a kind of. It's also uh, I have a different approach to the audience because a lot of the music they will understand and say ah okay you know so. But basically, most of what I do is free improvised music, mm-hmm. and then I know the audience is. Very limited, yeah. but the same is in, in modern poetry. Mm-hmm. If a Dutch poet brings publishes a book with uh, poems, there will be fifteen hundred, two thousand copies 
on a population of 70 million inhabitants. Yeah. <laughs> That's the relation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, I think the free impro is the same proportion. Yeah. So you always will get a small audience. Mm-hmm. And it's always have been like that. Yeah. So the, the old those uh, policy guys saying we have to enlarge the audience, that's okay, but there are limits. Yeah. Because only a few people really like it, understand it, uh, see it as a challenge, etc. Mm-hmm. And the majority say, "Ah, sorry, this is problematic. This is uh, yeah." It's interesting that I don't detect any frustration at all from you on that subject. Whereas I feel like, and maybe it's also just like. Uh, Maybe it's a generational thing or like a wisdom thing. I don't know, but I feel like if I talk to to somebody from my generation about the notion of well, we're you know we're dealing with a market where maybe we can sell a thousand CDs if we're very lucky, you know, and there'll be only this so much audience and 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 there is a sense of we need to work to change this or we need to work to, but it sounds like that's not at all an issue to you, like. Right? Yeah, it's a, it's a choice, you know. If you really want to reach a bigger audience you have to make your music more accessible. Mm-hmm. So it's a choice. Um, yeah. And it's, 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 a, it's also a mental choice. I mean, for me, I'm not that interested in, in per se make it accessible. I mean, I'm not against making it accessible, but yeah, yeah. it will not be a strategy of me to get more audience. Yeah, it sure. is just, yeah, this is what I do and more or less can do. Mm-hmm. So yeah. No, fair enough. It's just like the the notion of not compromising what you do is obviously really important to all of us. But then the idea of I won't compromise, and at the same time I want more attention, kind of is I think is a fairly common. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. of course it's understandable, but it's it's um, how to say. I mean, it is possible. I mean, look at Duke Ellington, or look at uh, Charles Mingus, or mm-hmm. you know those guys. Uh, or monk, I mean, but still the audience is not big. But those are fantastic masters, mm-hmm. really grandmasters. So yeah, uh, but it stays limited. It's yeah. it's not like pop music, you know. Pop music, you sell millions of mm-hmm. of LPs or CDs or whatever. Yeah, and I suppose that's also like it's a different definition of success, then, right? Because the the point is. If your goal is to sell millions of, of copies of things, then if you don't reach that, then you consider yourself as having failed. Yeah. Where, whereas, commercially seen, you're you're a failure. Yeah, exactly. If you don't and sell. and if you define your your uh, your artistic output by its commercial value, then you're lining yourself up to fail in that sense, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so actually, um, so guys that want to be a commercial, well, do it. I mean, uh, why not? But if you don't do it, the consequence is, the social consequence also is that you have to have side jobs, teaching or construction work. I did a lot of construction work. So to to get the money together, in time, I think you you get better and better in in integrate those things into an acceptable model. In the beginning, Mm -hmm. of course, when I was young, I was also thinking a bit like, huh? It takes quite long before there is some development in getting more audience or uh, yeah. being known or whatever. At a certain point, you realize, yeah, this is not the thing. It's not about this. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. really about your own productivity and your own. Yeah, you try to be authentic, and which doesn't mean to be original all the time, but be authentic. I think authenticity is a really uh, important thing. 
Yeah. No, definitely. Yeah. Um, I do want to focus in on, a bit on the record. Um, so the first and most obvious question is uh, Xavier Plamplona Septet, why the name? <laughs> I'm sure you're sick of, of people asking you that. No, maybe, no, no. But, well, <clears throat> well, actually, it, it's... Um... It's a bit influenced by a Portuguese poet, uh, Fernando Pessoa. Perhaps you heard about him. No, I haven't. He was using seven uh, heteronymen, so seven names. Yeah, okay. In which his literary production was uh, divided. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Uh, In a way, it's a very interesting guy, actually. He's Mm -hmm. from the the first part of the 20th century. Uh, so in a way, I right away felt, ah, this is a nice way to to get rid of yourself in a way. You know, you, you can, uh, under a different name, ah, it's, it's fresh start or, you know, yeah, something like that. Well, that was my association with that. Yeah. And then, um, so, and then, but I also thought, yeah, Raoul van der Weyne said that, I mean, it, it, it is not, no, it's not nice, <laughs> you know, it's not nice. Yeah. So, yeah, and I like names with... Uh, End of the alphabet, Zappa, Varese, Cenaki, yeah. so those underrated uh, yeah. things. <laughs> so I said, well, Xavier, and then Pamplona, because I know there's a town in Spain called Pamplona. Well, oh, it's nice open. Ah, oh, ah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then, of course, starts the, the thing what you are asking now, why, uh, yeah, what, who is Xavier Pamplona? Yeah. And that gives me the, the, the great uh, artistic freedom to to lie, to make, uh, to, to spread rumors. Yeah. And uh, I have two rumors for you. One rumor is uh, Xavier Pamplona was the son of the Cuban ambassador in Washington in 46. And he was a bass player. And he was the first one that cooperated with Dizzy Gillespie on Latin rhythms. Okay. And then he got killed in a car crash in New Jersey in 51. But you can you can check it on Wikipedia. Okay, it's not true. <laughs> you know, I do like the other rumor is Xavier Poplena was a Mexican uh, bebop player that opened in '51 the first bebop dance club in Mexico City. <laughs> you know, but you can invent a lot of identities yeah. behind this name. And mm-hmm. actually, I like to play a little bit with it. It's a bit, uh, no, yeah, okay, you know. Yeah. So that he he is also somewhat of a of a blank slate, and you you. Yeah, he's a bit alter ego. He's a bit. Uh, he's composed of a, a lot of different identities, you can say. Or yeah. A lot of different rumors are mm-hmm. constructing him. Yeah, and so there is no objective truth of who it is. It's, no, 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 yeah. no, no, no. It was uh, well, kind of playfulness. Yeah, <laughs> but I have to say, some people are shocked. Um, like a friend of mine, a very nice tenor alto player from uh, Argentina, and. Uh, I said, well, come to the Xavier Pamplona concert on the 6th of June in the Bimas. And uh, I said, yeah, yeah, perhaps. And But he didn't show up. And then later I said, oh, yeah, you missed a nice concert. And he said, yeah, yeah, but who is Xavier Pamplona? <laughs> that, that's me. <laughs> hey, but you, you have your own name. Why don't you? <laughs> so he was really not. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's funny. It's interesting. Um, can you tell me about the people that are that are in the band? And, and uh, I mean, you've got you've got a a bunch of really kind of interesting musicians that join you in the project. Can you tell me a bit about them individually and why, how you chose to work with them and that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, uh, Michael Moore, I know quite long. I played with him also in the Gujan Septet in the 80s. So yeah. I know him really good. And 
especially I like his clarinet playing yeah, a lot. Absolutely. Uh, so I was um, initially I invited Natalio Suet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Natalio at a certain point had to to quit because there were problems with his son, I think, and he was in too much groups. Whatever. Mm-hmm. So then I asked Michael. And um, then I already played quite regularly with Sif Taubenfeld, bass clarinet player, which I like a lot. Very expressive, very nice player. Um, Alistair Payne was recommended to me by George Heddo, the drummer. He knew Alistair. He said, yeah, I should ask him. I asked him. George Heddo I play a lot with in the Blue Lines Trio, in the Blue Lines Sextet, in the, um, the group of Jan Willem van der Ham. Uh, formerly known as Mulligan Baker Project, now known as Mixing Memory and Desire. Okay. <clears throat> because we quit a bit the uh, Mulligan uh, stuff. Uh, so, uh, George, I, I work for really long times, uh, for seven years, eight years, I think. Yeah. Um, Marta, I met in the scene. She's from uh, like CIF, uh, from the conservatory in Groningen, where yeah. Michael is teaching. Mm-hmm. And so they came to Amsterdam. So yeah, you meet each other, you hear each other. And I, I, I thought she's a fantastic talent. She's yeah. a really fantastic player in in both disciplines. Also, when it comes to jazz, mm-hmm. her her timing and phrasing and touch is, well, I like a lot. It's very delicate, nice, strong. Yeah. Uh, Giuseppe, the baritone player. Same, same. It's same for all the, those young musicians. They are really. A very good craftsman, but they also are interested in developing their own language, their own vocabulary, their own style. And I liked that mix in this band. So actually, I was really surprised. So I brought in some tunes <clears throat> and then we started to rehearse and I kind of counted off. And it, it was like a, a, a fantastic house. I mean, it was completely. Everything was okay, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so for me it was really because I never do that. So I was, yeah. I was very um, euphoric. Yeah. About that, and then comes and then we um, then we start to work on um, how to put the improvisation in the material. Mm-hmm. But the 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 reason that I invited these musicians was really because of their qualities as a. Craftsman, museum, uh, musician, but also uh, the willingness and the openness to to start adventures in music, mm-hmm. and not only playing in fixed uh, frames. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so that's that's basically the reason. Yeah, and so um, it is. Maybe it's not that that unusual, but it feels like a somewhat unusual like instrumentation to me. Um, how? Was there? Was it just okay? These are the six people that I want to work with, and that is what it is. And they could play the bagpipes; it wouldn't matter. Or was there a clear sense in your mind that you're like, okay, I want a piano trio with four horns? Um, kind of, yeah. How? What is the the relationship there? Uh, the relationship is is um, well, like Michael. I really specifically asked him to play clarinet, so he doesn't play alto in yeah. my band. Mm-hmm. It's only clarinet. Uh, because of the sound quality and the, it, basically everything for me is about sound quality, personal sound, your mm-hmm. musical fingerprint, personal sound. That's yeah. really important. 
and they all have that. And then it was less important to say, uh, because bass clarinet baritone is quite low, Yeah. but then we have clarinet and trumpet is higher. So in a way there is a balance, but not uh, a balance you would expect with a tenor, sax, you know, uh, more sliding. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing. But in a way it works. It, for me it works. It works. Mm-hmm. No, fair enough. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I do want to... Um, there's there's a few more things that I want to talk about, but I, I do want to specifically talk about the bass because it would be sad for two bass players to sit around a table and not yeah. talk about the bass. <laughs> um, you again in our in our email conversation before this, you were you were talking about um, notions of um, of personal aesthetics as an improviser and specifically the way that relates to your instrument. Um, and I wonder if you can develop a bit on that. Tell me a bit about how you. Um, how do you see the place of the of the bass within your personal aesthetics and like how those two things are connected? Yeah, I, uh, when I started playing more and more free improvised music, <clears throat> I realized that I really should broaden my specter of uh, expression of the instrument. So from then on, I, I developed own techniques uh, with insertions, with... Uh, Double bowing, so whatever uh, the, uh, the mute, the wood mute, I can use as a percussive stuff. Mm-hmm. So I try to make the, the 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 vocabulary broader and broader. So that makes you also more flexible into any situation than if you only can do tunk tunk which is great <laughs> yeah. in itself, but it's not enough. Yeah. So I like to to make it uh, broader, and. Um, so for me, a bass player actually that that was uh, there's, well, I mean Jimmy Blendon of course, uh, Oscar Pettiford is a big big. Uh, I'm a big fan. Mm-hmm. Charles Mingus fantastic, Doc Watkins great. So there are really those guys. Ralph Pina from Jimmy Jufri Trio, fantastic yeah. player. There are more, and then suddenly came David Eisenson, mm-hmm. which I heard in that Ornette Trio, uh, Coleman Trio in uh, Stockholm in the Golden Circle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then I heard him coloring with the bow in that free jazz context. And I said, wow, this is incredible. Mm-hmm. So for me, he was also a very um, important influence yeah. to add the bowing in a very abstract way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it makes me as a player more interesting for others to play free improvised music if I have more to say with different techniques. Yeah. And of course, those techniques should always be um, not a goal in itself, but a means to get into a form. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's not a, a method, method fetishism or something. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But so, how does the how does the notion of exploring alternative techniques relate to the uh, the notion of like practicing and like? the craftsmanship of the instrument. I'm always interested in that because obviously we have clearly defined methods of like, this is how you practice to play in in tune and this is how you practice to play with a beautiful vibrato and with a nice bowing technique and stuff. But then when you're dealing with like these alternative techniques, like is there a sense of, okay, I'm going to practice finding new sounds? I mean, I know that that's a thing that uh, famously Anthony Braxton did, which is like actually categorizing I can't remember what it was. It was something like in 60, 70 different sounds that he kind of yeah, 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 like yeah, yeah. defined, okay, these are the different things that I can make yeah. on my instrument. 
Um, yeah. Is there any? I mean, you said there's no method, right? So maybe I'm asking yeah. the wrong question. Well, actually, um, well, Anthony Braxton is a very systematic guy, so uh, I, I know this story, and it's it's fantastic. I'm, yeah. I'm a bit less systematic, but of course, I so I use focuses. Mm -hmm. So it can be that I r just practice for one and a half hour only uh, overtones. Okay, yeah. Just explore all the overtones I can find, mm -hmm. uh, and keep that in my vocabulary and and and. Um, Underhoud it, um, maintain, yeah. maintain it, and other stuff uh, like insertion. Uh, I'm, I try to do percussive stuff with that, for instance. Mm -hmm. So I try to make little exercises with the, the techniques I use, yeah. and 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 um, make it um, so that I have to do it for let's say um, forty minutes with one item, just yeah, to get okay. it. Yeah. Because I was uh, I was reading an interview with Steve Lacey. There's a book uh, with most of his interviews, and somewhere he he tells the guy that interviews him that uh, one of his favorite practices is to play a minor second for 15 minutes, and he said the first 20 minutes is a complete bore, <laughs> complete bore. Suddenly that minor second opens up. And you go in a complete, fantastic universe. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is, yeah, this is great, you know. So you have to first go to a lot of boring thing, and suddenly your your consciousness enters in that new space in a way. Yeah, that's very kind of John Cagey, right? So it's like yeah. If you do something for a minute and it's boring, do it for ten minutes, and if it's still boring, do it for a hundred minutes, and if it's still boring, <laughs> do it for. Th yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, it's uh, the same story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perhaps, yeah. Uh, yeah. Perhaps he was influenced by John Cage. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so the the um, the other kind of really important topic that I think needs to be um, discussed with you is. Um, Kind of a le maybe a less musical topic and more of a like a organizational topic, which is the the fact that you have created a bunch of initiatives and you are very instrumental in kind of uh, keeping the the culture of the scene alive and also like creating like events. You you do a lot of uh, a lot of work in various places. I mean, that's how we met. I, I played at House de Pinto, and that's a yeah. series that yeah. you kind of organize. So can can you? Tell me a bit about all the different initiatives that you're behind, and and also why. I mean, I know it's it's something that we talk about more and more. The sense of kind of do-it-yourself culture, and that it's important that as musicians we kind of take control of of the uh, or at least create opportunities for ourselves and, and that kind of stuff. So, can you elaborate on that kind of stuff a bit? <clears throat> no, I think um, the the urge to create space for others is a, something that is in my family from my mother's side. I know that my grandfather was a director of a factory and he invested in building houses for his employees, mm -hmm. which was really revolutionary. Wow, yeah. Uh, so I, I right away understand this commitment for others. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's perhaps in my DNA somewhere. Uh, so, um, but I have to say something uh, in advance of that. During the 90s, <clears throat> I got uh, quite ill without knowing it. And mid-90s, I completely quit playing. I was really tired. I was... And then in 99, uh, my house doctor found out that I had a thyroid condition. Okay, yeah. Which was called Hashimoto syndrome. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. which is an autoimmune uh, disease, yeah. in which the thyroid cells are yeah, destructed. So your whole endocrinological system slows down. Yeah. Metabolism, everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you really feel like a zombie. It was really, really, um, well, quite terrible. Yeah. Okay, then the diagnosis, then the medication, and then in two years you, you start to become, you get a new life. I got mm-hmm. a new life. That's all it's, for me, it was like incredible. Yeah. I played again. I liked again. I discovered uh, new things. Uh, mm. I got really... Um, and then I decided, okay, now from now on, I only do things I really want to do. So no more first, no more... Okay, I also... No, just focus on the main activities you want to do. Yeah. And in that focus, next to my own artistic development and, and, and playing... Uh, the focus was also creating space for others, so starting series. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think bringing people together in the scene is is very important because we're all part of that community. Yeah. Whatever position you are in it or whatever perspective you have, doesn't matter. We share the passion of making music, reproducing make, uh, or instant composing music. We share that passion. But a lot of people don't see, don't know each other, or you know. So my idea was bring it together, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. So the first uh, series I started with uh, George Heddo was called uh, Oursprung, yeah. curator series, and the concept was very simple. So we invited every month uh, three curators: one from dance, one from electronics, one from acoustic impro. Mm-hmm. And the curators were uh, requested to cast lineups which were blind dates. Okay. So let's say an uh, electronic guy or girl could show up with eight dancers as long as those eight dancers never played together before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was a restriction. But I think I thought that was really good. Yeah. Because I didn't want fixed groups, regular groups, um, you know, make it fresh, new. And actually, that, yeah. In retrospect, it was a fantastic idea. Mm-hmm. I was half aware of it. Yeah. <laughs> and in time, I, I realized, oh, yeah, but this is... Because those, um, also talking about uh, bringing up audience, those uh, curators, they brought their own audience. Yeah. The dancers, they brought their audience. The electronics, they brought their audience. So suddenly you got really... It was always quite uh, well attended, those yeah. concerts. Mm-hmm. And the results, yeah, were between gold and mud, but that's that's <laughs> that is okay. I mean, there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that. It was experimental, so do your thing, and go from stretch. Don't rehearse. Don't make uh, afspraken appointments. Yeah, just go. Mm-hmm. So we did that for uh, eight years, and then I also made a, a meal before. So mostly we were having a meal with 13, 14, 15 people. So it was mostly a meal soup and Turkish bread and salad, so not yeah. that uh, complex. But it was nice to sit together because a lot of people didn't know each other. So it's more relaxed, informal to have a little bit of that and create a nice a nice open atmosphere. I think that is that is really, really important. The atmosphere is really important. Yeah. Not that you come in a space, okay, you take your instrument, you go, and that's it. Bye-bye. Okay. Yeah. So I like more... Uh, no, well, that atm- atm- atmospherical uh, aspect mm-hmm. to be uh, present. Uh, so we did it for eight years. We started in, I think, 2009, and we did the last one in June 2017. Mm-hmm. 
And during that series, I was asked by Huis de Pinto, which was the former library of the Outmarks neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then the library moved to the big one. So there was space. And then internally, they decided uh, we should make a neighborhood ce- a cultural center. And then one of the man- people from the managing group uh, asked me, would you do once a month something here like Orsprung? Mm-hmm. And say, yeah, no, I, I, I want to do that, but not like Orsprung, because Orsprung is already running. <laughs> so we have yeah. to think about a different concept. And then I came up, uh, I was thinking about, yeah, what's not yet happening structurally in Amsterdam? Well, actually programming solo sets. Mm-hmm. So we were the first doing that structurally. And so I thought, let's do two sets, always one solo set and always a small ensemble because it's the space is not that big and basically uh, acoustic. But if there's electronics, etc., it's okay, of course, but it's kind of small. Yeah. So we, we had a bunch of solo sets, very different from, uh, yeah, from everywhere, US, France, Italy, Germany. So that's great. And it's also... Um, yeah, yeah. I also see that people uh, are very happy to play there. You know, it's also nice that they enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, but again, I mean, compared to Orsprung, this is not much work because I know a lot of people. I get a lot of emails from people saying, "Can I play?" So I have a whole list. Yeah. Orsprung was a lot of work because there were always misunderstandings with the curators. <laughs> I remember one curator came with his lineup of six people. Saying um, it's it's a hundred euro each. Eh? <laughs> Sorry, that we, we are not subsidized. Yeah, uh, that was a bit difficult because he brought in Ethiopian musicians. Ah, okay. And of course, yeah, for them having the money, of course, is is perhaps ten thousand times more important for us. Yeah. So then I borrowed money, and I paid them, and then I was hoping in time to get from the entrance. Yeah, money back. Okay. So yeah. at the end, we succeeded in doing that. So at the end, it was okay. Yeah. But sometimes you get a, because then I sent a reminder, let's say two weeks before, mm-hmm. and sometimes you get a reaction like, eh? I thought it was next month. <laughs> so uh, <yeah>. then <laughs> you have to repair. But okay, yeah. it's also a learning process. So you learn to to deal with that mm-hmm. and to stay cool and to stay uh, yeah, positive and productive and do that. So those, um, yeah, those two series are. Uh, where well, Osman was structurally, uh, Pintotonics, which is the name of the series, and yeah. it has to Pinto, is also structurally, and we will go on with that. And then I do, uh, incidentally, atelier concerts in my space, yeah. which is mostly Sunday afternoons or something, or Saturday mm-hmm. afternoon. Yeah. yeah. Cool, yeah. Um, I guess, I mean, we're kind of getting, getting towards the end of this conversation, I think, but... Um, but b- before I ask you the last question, which I ask everybody, I, I do want to um, ask you maybe a more general question, which is I always like to, when I talk to people who have been kind of active within the scene for as long as you have, I do like to ask how have you like perceived the evolution of the scene here? Like is there are there tendencies and trends that have happened over the past, whatever it is, like 40 years, I guess, that you've been um, busy yeah. with this stuff. Like, how, how have you see, seen things go? And do you see, like, new directions things are going in and that, that kind of... Uh... Uh, <clears throat> when I started in the, let's say, 
second half of the 70s, there was a, yeah, a limited uh, amount of progressive jazz musicians slash instant composers. Mm-hmm. So you knew everybody. And that, that image completely changed. Also because of the conservatory started to, to uh, have uh, jazz education department and yeah. guys. So they came in. Uh, there came more, more and more uh, foreign musicians from, from uh, Israel, South, South America, came in. Yeah. A lot of Italian musicians stay here. Mm-hmm. So actually it's fantastic to have all those different cultures together. Yeah. So for the scene it's fantastic. And so mm-hmm. that is really a thing that completely changed. Yeah. Completely changed, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, in terms of ideas, uh, of course sometimes you see... People do things that remind you of a performance from '72, uh, <laughs> but they don't know because they they don't have that historical knowledge. But yeah. that's also not an important thing because they have to reinvent themselves in their way. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's funny to see that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so <Yeah>. wow, <clears throat> but um, no, no, that that, that is uh, that's good and. Uh, I mean, I'm not the only guy that is doing series because there are more guys like Nico Centaroli did uh, a monthly thing. There's, of course, Eric Boer in Zalhonde, the Jose mm-hmm. Knight for 30 years. Yeah. So he's yeah. really the king of the of doing that. So there are more musicians. And I, th- I think that's really important that musicians take initiative to organize series because artistic freedom is then central. Mm-hmm. If you let it do by institutions, there are a lot of conditions like we should have audience, mm-hmm. we should have this, we should. And now we say we do it on, on our own conditions. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And that's important. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's great. Yeah. yeah. No, definitely. Um, is there anything that we haven't mentioned that you want to touch upon? Anything that you're, um, that I haven't asked you about? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> well, I think we talked a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. Well, um, yeah. the The record is is called Play the. Um, that's not something that I asked you about actually. The title of the record, but uh, um, that feels to me like it's probably as much of a mystery as the name of the band. Maybe. Well, it's, yeah. Perhaps you can say I was thinking Play the, and then you can fill in. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. So it's also space for interpretation of the material you hear. And everyone will make a different interpretation or, I don't know. Yeah. Let's see. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I always like to end these uh, conversations by asking my guests to recommend something. It can be absolutely anything, something that you think uh, that you found particularly inspiring or that you think deserves some attention that people should check out. It can be anything. It can be music related, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. I uh, don't know if anything comes to mind. What impressed me years ago <clears throat> was reading the letters Vincent van Gogh wrote to his brother Theo, yep. who yeah, was yeah, an yeah. art dealer mm-hmm. in Paris. Yeah. And as we all know, the, uh, Vincent van Gogh never sold or perhaps sold one painting during his life. Yeah. If you read those letters, mm-hmm. which are fantastic, it's really about content and about his emotional life around his... his uh, Yeah, his own development as a painter. Everybody should read that. Everybody that's creative and producing art should read that because it gives a very sincere, open, honest. You you see the struggle. You see, um, yeah, it's it's fascinating, really fascinating, and a great a great soul. 
Mm-hmm. You read a great soul. That's uh, so I can recommend that. Yeah, yeah. You're not the first actually to recommend that. I think. Uh, oh, okay. I remember another guest. I think maybe Tain Vibicha recommended that. Yeah, it's oh, okay. Uh, it's definitely a touchstone. I mean, I remember reading them when I was in high school. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah, it, I was. Good, uh, um, yeah. Nice recommendation, uh, Raúl. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a real pleasure. Well, it was my pleasure to invite me. Thank you. <laughs> That was Raoul van der Weyde. There will be more music from him in just a moment. Many thanks to my fellow members of Catrio for providing intro and outro music. Please subscribe to this show wherever you like to get your podcasts. Leave favorable reviews and ratings wherever that may be. Tell a friend if you know anybody who might be interested in listening to this kind of stuff. That is the best way for me to spread the word, both about this show and about all the wonderful musicians that are featured on it. Go to patreon.com slash sound of the moment if you want to make a donation to help me keep the show up and running. Even the smallest amount is really helpful and thanks so much to those of you who already donate. You can reach me on Twitter at Pat Cleaver. You can like the Sound of the Moment page on Facebook and you can email me at pat at soundofthemoment.com. Now for more music, this is another track from Raoul's Xavier Pamplona Septet and it is entitled Feitenlied. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Sound of the Moment.
Thank you.